Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Right on. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? It is uh, Memorial Weekend. Our country sets aside a day each year to remember those who, uh, who gave their life in service so that we could worship in freedom like this. And maybe some of you have uh, served in the military before. Just curious by show of hands. Anybody out there? Good. Thank you for your service. Um, just want to start today. Uh, let's just ask a blessing for those who are currently serving abroad, too. Let's bow our heads. Father, we want to give you thanks that today we get to worship in a place that we're free. So thank you for the sacrifices people have made for that. We ask you also, Lord, that you would be with the men and women in uniform around the world that are uh, offering their service still to this day. And uh, we ask your blessing would be upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, great. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, If you're following along today, you can find a note sheet in your program. Feel free to follow along. But um, I have a wife, and I also have a little boy. He's 19 months old. His name is Caleb. You'll see him on the screen in a second. There he is. Um, you can tell he's an extrovert. He loves people, loves to be with people. But at 19 months, you'll, something happens with little kids. They begin to realize that they're their own person, so they're beginning to explore their own world. They have some independence. They're figuring that out, which also means that they will test boundaries. Um, so if you've ever been around little kids or if you've had kids, uh, you know this to be true. And something happens. Like sometimes you have to discipline them. And so I'll say, Caleb, now if you do that again, um, you're going to have to sit down for a minute. Okay? So you can't do that. That's a no. And then he'll do it again. All right, now you got to sit down for a second. And he'll sit down, and he'll cry and cry. Uh, and then right after he's done, do you, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but little kids, they want to give you a hug. Now, why do they do that? Because there's something instinctive within them that they want to be right. They want to be in a right relationship. Give him a hug, and he can go running off, and he's happy again because things feel right. Now, we get that because we are exactly the same way. We want relationships to be right, whether it's in a relationship with a friend and a friend, a husband and a wife, um, child with a parent, could even be an employer with a boss. But all around, we desire for things to be right in relationship because we're hardwired for it, especially with our most important relationship, which is relationship with God, which, which shows you that anywhere you would go, around the world, no matter what continent you go to, no matter what people group you go to, no matter what time period you look at, religions have come up with ways to define who God is and also to try and figure out how is man to become, to be right with God. So there's a central issue. How is someone made right with God? And people have debated this, tried to figure it out for all time. And I want to I start this morning by trying to give you a picture of there's really two basic approaches. One is a religious approach. And no matter which one you choose, there's something pretty basic in it, which is called the scale model. How does that work? Well, they say your life, if you want to be right with God, that your life is under scrutiny and that the good things that you do will be counted for you. So on this side of the scale, you're doing some great things, walking old ladies across the street, you know, buying Girl Scout cookies, whatever you define as good. Uh, On the other side, the bad things are going to be held against you as well. So you're starting to do some things, um, compromising, cheating on this, lying about this. Pretty soon, if the bad outweighs the good, you're not in good standing with God. So you better work on this side of the scale. It's called the scale approach. It's not uncommon. It comes up, it creeps up in different ways. And like I said, it can, no matter how God is defined or what it is, salvation, you can what they define as salvation, could really be put to the scale model. I'll give you three quick examples. The first one is Islam. How do they define it? How do they look at what salvation is? 
Look at this quote from them. It says, when someone will come for questioning, his deeds will be put on one side of the scale and the bad deeds on the other side of the scale. If the bad deeds are more than the, that person, more than that person may go to hell. So there you have it. Um, they, there's the five pillars of Islam. They've got to follow these different things. And your life is really all weighed upon a set, scale. In fact, it's a direct quote from the Quran. It talks about the scale in there. So Islam has the whole scale approach in there. What about like an Eastern religion? Um, define God totally differently, but let's take Buddhism, for example. How do they do it? Well, here's, here's how, how salvation is defined. Salvation is through reincarnation. It's working with the laws of karma by following the eightfold path through, what's the next two words? Self-effort. So there you have it again. Now, what they're even saying is it takes so much work that you're not even going to accomplish it in one lifetime. It's going to take several of these, probably, or many, many, many. And the whole idea of the law of karma, if you do better at the end of this life, then you'll come back a little bit better. If you do worse, you're going to come back a little bit worse. But you have a lot of work to do. This whole scale is in play. It's up to you. It's the work that you do. Now, there can be variations of this. Um, and there's another variation which says God will basically put a little bit into your good side for you. He's going to help you out. He's going to deposit some good already. So you start out with a little bit of a plus. But you still got to work the other side. For an example, that's Mormonism. Take a look at this. How, how would they define it? They'd say, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved. Now again, when they use the words uh, grace, God, Jesus, they have different definitions for them. We're not going into that today. I just want you to focus on the whole idea of salvation. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved. What's the next phrase? After, After all we can do. Well, that's scary. Do you ever imagine if you went to bed at the end of the day did you, and you think, man, did I do everything I could have done today? That's a pretty big burden to carry. In fact, it goes on to tell you how much you should be thinking about. Um, let us with faith, enthusiasm, dedication, responsibility, and love do all that is within our reach. Man, were you motivated, dedicated? Did you do everything within your reach? That's why for them, they can really wonder, like, have I done enough? So recently, even at a 2007 conference that they had, uh, one of their leaders said this. It's hard to know when we have done enough for the atonement to change our natures and so qualify us for eternal life. So do you see the challenge with this scale approach? It's up to you. So the scale really says the work is up to you. You've got to do a lot of work. Even in, with Mormonism, uh, grace is deposited in a certain amount, but you better be doing your part on this side of the scale. The scale is still there. That's the scale approach. Every religion has it. Off-the-scale approach. Well, what is that? The off-the-scale approach is what we would call biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity goes to say that, no, we could never earn it ourselves, so God came and earned it for us. In fact, we will call this the off-the-scale approach. Because if, if Christ came, he lives this perfect life, he does it, he sacrifices his life in our place, he has done the work of the scale, and he has died, so the scale has now been fulfilled, completed, accomplished. So now, if we put our faith in Christ, we're trusting in what he's already done, then we are off the scale. And if this represents the bad side, it's gone. So the work that we do, the things that used to be against us, you can do them. Even your future sins are not counted for or against you. That's the off the scale approach. Nobody else has that. There's nothing else there. That's why we don't like to use the word Christianity as a religion. 
No, it's a relationship with Christ, a God who has done something we could never do. So <clears throat> that's, that's the central issue, and it's a very issue, the whole idea of how are you made right with God. It's a message um, and question that the Galatians have been wondering about. We're in a series in the book of Galatians, and in chapter 3, um, Paul is going to be going on because somewhere in here, the Christians at this church of Galatia start mixing the scale, up. they start mixing this whole thing up. Instead of being off the scale, they start going back to the scale. How do they do that? They have a big mistake that they make, uh, the Galatian church. They say, if you want to be right with God, experience the blessing of God, that it's going to take, you're going to have to tr- start acting Jewish. It's going to take Jewishness plus Jesus to have the blessing or favor of God. So they say, well, so Galatians, what you need to do, there's people going around saying, Yo, you need to get circumcised. Because that's what the Jews did. It's a mark of God's chosen people. You need to get circumcised. Or you need to do some of these Jewish laws. So all of a sudden, whenever they're saying that, they're saying, yes, it's Jesus, but you got to put this part of the scale. you got to do some of these things too. That's why Paul is so frustrated. He's like, they know better than this. You guys know it. So even when Mike was teaching last week on Galatians chapter 3, it starts out with these first little phrase. It says, you foolish Galatians. I love how the Phillips translation says it. Oh, you dear idiots. Like, what are you thinking? Um, and he's frustrated because it is such a big deal to go back to that scale. And, um, and if you have your Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. And what he, Paul is going to be doing in this, he's going to be giving two proofs, two clear reasons why we should it should be faith alone. It's not trying to do something to earn this. And last week, it was a discussion about the fact that, hey, you know that this is true. Because when God came and supernatural experiences happened, you encountered the Holy Spirit. Was it because you were trying to do Jewish things? Were you doing anything? And the answer, obviously, is no, they weren't. It, they had faith in Christ, and they had powerful God encounters. So Paul says, look at your own experiences, Look at what the Spirit of God has done. So he uses the Spirit of God as a proof. Secondly, he's going to use now the Scriptures as a proof. So look at what God, the experiences you've had. Now let's go back to what the Word of God said. And the Word of God he's referring to is the Old Testament. Paul's going to be showing that even the Old Testament has always shown that salvation is by faith alone. You can't do it. You can't earn it. And so it's going to come into uh, chapter 3, verse 6. And... um, one of the things that the current people of the day, the Judaizers of the day, were saying that they were lifting up Moses, because Moses, remember, he went on the mountain, got the commandments, brought the Jewish law, very esteemed, prominent guy, um, and they elevated him so much, they're like, well, look what Moses did and what he instituted, and they're pointing back to Moses. So this is going to be like a courtroom scene, kind of. How many of you like courtroom dramas where you see intense court scenes and they're trying to present their case? It's kind of like that, because he's going to go back to the Old Testament, he'll give six Old Testament quotes in these few verses. And what he's doing is systematically laying this case why the whole scale approach is not appropriate, that salvation with God is so different than that. It's totally other, and he's going to go through it. So he starts, and he goes back to the person of Abraham. First thing he says is, consider Abraham. That's in verse 6. And the reason he does it is because Abraham lived long before Moses, and he is also known as the father of the Jewish nation. So if you want to talk about Jewishness, becoming more like a Jew or acting Jewish, uh, then let's go right back to the guy. Let's go right to Abraham. How was he saved? This is where we pick up in verse 6. He says, consider Abraham. He, underline these two words, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
So that's a quote from Genesis 15, 6. What this is doing is taking you back to a time when Abraham had this amazing encounter with God. It's a very dark night. The stars are out. So go to that moment in your head. We'll help you here. Um, there you go. Amazing technology. Um, anyway, dark night. And what, what happens this night is, you know, God calls him basically out of his tent. He had already left the city of Ur, and he was, he was at this place fulfilling a promise that God had already given. But God calls him out, and Abraham was wrestling with the whole di- idea of who his descendants are going to be, what's going to happen. He's 100 years old. Sarah, his wife, is 90 years old. They have no kids. And, you know, at that age, there's not a lot of prospect here, right? Uh, so he's, he's wrestling with this, and God says, listen, Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. So he kind of points to the sky and says, look at the stars. You can't count those just like your descendants. You won't be able to count them. In fact, the real big promise in this is that one of his descendant, which would be Isaac, uh, the promised Messiah would come. And the ultimate, he'd be the bloodline for Jesus Christ, where the Messiah would come. And when God brought him out, and he's looking out into the stars and seeing all those stars, and if you've been out on one of those nights, you know there's certain nights you can't even begin to count the stars. Um, He's overwhelmed with it, and something happens. God gave a promise. He gave a visual of the stars. Abraham believes it, and then it says he's considered righteous. He's in right standing with God. Why? Yeah, because he believed. You can bring the lights up. Now, did Abraham do anything? Did he get circumcised? No, he didn't do that for 14 years. Did he follow the Jewish law? No, that wasn't given until over 400 years away. So this is how Paul's laying his case in chapter 3. He says, listen, consider Abraham. He was saved by faith. And then it goes on, verse 7, understand then that those who believe, underline that again, are children of Abraham. So who are the true heirs of Abraham? It's not because you're a physical descendant and you're Jewish. No, it's all believers are true heirs of Abraham. So what that means, it's Jew, it's Gentile, it's any non-Jew. It's open to everyone. That's always been the heart and intention of God. And Paul's laying his case out. And he goes on to verse 8. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles. How? By faith. Now, how did the scriptures foresee this in the Old Testament? There's so much on this. Even Paul, uh, it's in the, chap- in, in the book of Acts, he's standing before a king and tells this king, King Agrippa, he says, listen, even Moses and the prophets said Jesus would come and would die. It's foreshadowing it. Now, it didn't use the word Jesus, but there's all these pictures and types pointing to that. That's why, um, e- well, even if you've uh, read in your Bible, Isaiah 53, a chapter that talks about um, the work of Christ on the cross doesn't use his name, but it's a, it's a beautiful picture um, of the agony and torment and pain that he went through, and it's, a, it's the greatest picture of love that's been given to us. So it says basically he's despised. He's, he is uh, like a lamb going to the slaughter. He becomes a guilt offering for us. It's this, it's this crazy picture, Isaiah, foreshadowing what's to come. That's why Jesus, even in John eight fifty eight. Um, it says, hey, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. So Jesus is saying, Abraham looked forward to my coming. So even Abraham looked forward to it. If you ever read Genesis chapter 22, it's a famous story of Abraham and Isaac, his son, when God says, I want you to go sacrifice your son. Why would he do that? Amazing model and picture of what God was ultimately going to do. And Abraham even had to believe something amazing. He tells his servant who he's standing next to, he says, listen, me and Isaac will go up. Um, going to present this offering 
and it says, we will come down. He believed his son would come too. Well, how would that happen? You'd have to believe in a resurrection. Amazing, and obviously God provides the animal in the thicket, and it's, it's a substitutionary thing that happened, but even God gave him a model in his own life what God would ultimately do himself in the future. The Old Testament is constantly pointing towards the work of Christ. That's why when verse 8 says that, it's, it's a big deal. And we even have a chapter in our Bible dedicated to, like, underscore this. It's Hebrews chapter 11. It's known as the chapter of faith. And it says, without faith, you can't please God. It's all about faith. And it talks about a lot of key figures. It talks about Enoch, Abel, like from Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. Verse 13 says, these all, what? They died in faith, not having received the promises. The promise of the ultimate Messiah would be coming, be fulfilled in the future. But having seen them afar off, were persuaded by them. They believed that it would be coming. And they embraced them. How? Well, by faith, obviously. So the Old Testament is looking towards the cross, towards Christ. And now we look back to the cross, back to Christ. But the whole idea is by faith, we are off the scale. And it's a work of God. It's not the work we do. So that's how Paul lays his case. And um, he goes on. The scripture in verse 8, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. This is Galatians 3, and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. And he quotes Genesis 12 here. He says, all nations will be blessed through you. Well, what's that promise? That just means like from his son Isaac, the Messiah bloodline would actually come and Jesus would be offered to the whole world. So we all have access to Christ. And he goes on, verse 9, so those who, what, have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what is this blessing, this blessing um, that's referred to, blessed along with Abraham? The shortest way of saying it, it is the blessing of the opportunity to be be in right standing with God. It's we call justified, justification. Pastor Mike did a uh, sermon on this a few weeks ago, great message. Listen listen to it if you want to go deeper into that whole topic. But it's the idea that you are made right with God, you are off the scale. So... Um, now, he's going to go on to explain how this actually took place. How was, how was this accomplished? And he's going to give two verses on it. Um, verse 11 and 12 are going to really describe two roads, two different paths, two options. Um, it says people will try it one way or the other. And uh, he lays them out. So skip verse 10. We'll come back to it. Verse 11 says this. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live, how? By faith. So this one path is, oh, hey, we're off the scale. It's by faith in something God's already done. Well, the other path says this. It says, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Or what are these things? It's living by the law. So it's almost like it's saying, hey, you could live by the law, try and fulfill that, and that's how you can get your eternal life. Um, or you can try and live by faith. So it's either the work of God or the work that you do. But is it really that much of an option? Let's take the work we do first. This is where you jump back to verse 10. And then it says this in verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. So here's the trick. If you try to do it yourself, it's the work that you do, you're under a curse. What's the curse? Uh, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Well, where does he get that? That's back from the law itself, Deuteronomy 27. He's quoting it. 
Basically, the curse of the law is this. Partial obedience is disobedience. So if you don't obey the law fully, you're done. You can't out, you can't, it's like if you went over to the scales and all it takes, if you, if you don't obey in one spot, one error, it's now counted against you. And you can't add to this side of the scale to get rid of that. It's not how it works. The curse is this. All it takes is a blemish and you're done. So the curse is that it is impossible to do it. And the idea is that we're all under the curse. That's why in Romans chapter 3 it says, all have sinned. We're all have fallen short of the God, the glory of God. So we're all on this side of the scale. So if you think you want to try and earn God's favor and do all this on your own, you're under a curse because it'll never work. We've already all messed up. So that the supposed road of trying to work, work it out is really a dead end. Now, is the law, like, do we need it? Yeah, that had to be fulfilled. And so it took somebody coming to live that in a perfect way. So that's where God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ, he comes, he lives, he lives it perfectly. And the catch is this, the law has to be fulfilled and lived out either by you or for you. And it was lived out for us by Christ, which gives him the authority to fulfill it perfectly and ultimately take on the curse of the law himself. And that's what it shows us here. So, um, and it it goes on uh, to say here um, in verse 13, Uh, how by faith we can receive it. It explains how Jesus became the curse. Verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. So the things held against you are now dropped on him. He took the curse. Verse 13 goes on, for it's written, and he's quoting Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. What's that mean? Uh, in the Jewish law, Mosaic law, it was said that if somebody um, committed a capital crime, they, they would stone him. That's traditionally how they would do it. And they would hang the body publicly on a stake or a tree because that public display on a tree or on a stake was a picture of divine rejection. They're under the curse and rejection of God. That's, what the, that's why they would do it. So you've got to understand how this would really mess with people's mind of the day, Jesus comes, he takes on the curse, he, is, he, is, he dies on a cross in public display. He takes on the curse of God. That's what that whole display even means. He's under the curse, publicly displayed. So now when people are coming back and say, hey, Jesus is the Messiah, he's the promised one, whoa, in their minds, that does not compute because he's cursed, he hung on a tree. How can the guy who is cursed by God be God? like this makes no sense and for them it was a huge stumbling block they couldn't get in their mind that the fact that he, the the curse that he bore on the tree was their curse and our curse and so the cross became a stumbling point for even people to believe but that's but paul's laying out even the cross is part of the plan it's him taking on the curse it's powerful stuff now why would he do it verse 14 he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham, there's that blessing, <clears throat> might come to the Gentiles, all non-Jews, through Jesus Christ, so that by faith we may receive the promise of the Spirit. So through faith, you get this thing called the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham includes justification. You are an ultimate right standing with God. 
you have it. It means you're declared righteous. Even the sins for the future you'll eventually commit cannot be held against you. They're off the scale. Got it? So it, it includes that. It also includes eternal life. And it even includes the gift of the Holy Spirit, person of God coming inside of you to help live this whole life out, to do the things you could never do on your own. So this blessing is beyond good. It's better than we could imagine. And it's available to all who? Believers by faith in Christ. That's what, and so this is why Paul is beating on this so hard. Because the challenge is this. Anytime that you try to do anything to make yourself acceptable in God's sight, you're going back to a scale. We've been taken off that scale. And so uh, the Jews did it by saying you have to become Jewish or act Jewish. How do we do that? Well, our mistake, we can say that my good plus Jesus equals the blessing or favor of God. That, yeah, we need Jesus, but it's still going to take some of the things that I do. Now, you might not think you struggle with that. You might not think you do it. Let me unpack kind of how this happens, kind of the anatomy of how we start to slip. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced times in your life, if you're a Christ follower, that you've experienced that you've kind of slipped away from God. You feel like you're falling away, and you feel distant in your relationship with God. And it's getting uncomfortable. It's gone on for a while. You may be even doing something that you shouldn't have been doing for quite a while, and it's eating at you, and it's driving you crazy, and you want to make this thing right. And so you feel like, okay, I'm coming back. I, I can't live with this any longer. That whole hard wiring within you to be in right standing, right relationship is driving you crazy. You want to be right. So you're going to do what it takes to become clean, and so you're going to ease back into this. Like, you've been a little sporadic on your church center. You're going to get faithful in attending. You're like, man, I haven't even given for a while. You start pulling out the checkbook. You're writing your checks. Like, okay, I'm tithing. I'm, I'm giving again. Uh, oh, there's a mission strip. This will earn me big points. I'm going on that. Uh, and so in the back of your mind, you feel like you need to give God some cooling off time. You've ticked him off for a while. And now he's got to kind of cool down. You can't just prance in there. Show him, like, you're going to put the, the good things that you're trying to do. You're being faithful at church. You're giving, doing these things. You're going to kind of put those things in front of you. So when you come to God, like, look, see what's over here? Uh, you're, you're kind of saying, I'm serious about this. I'm coming back. Anytime, even in your mind, if you're doing this subtly, you're adding a law that has never been there. You're going back to a scale. Thinking that God acts or reacts like we do. No, we're off the scale. That's why this is such a big deal. And so it's a very subtle trap. And, and, and what it's really doing is you're emphasizing your successes, feeling like you have to show some of the good things that you're doing, and he'll like you a little bit more. He'll feel better about you. The minute you do that, you're going back to the law. And so that's trap number one if you're following along. What's the first trap we can fall into? Emphasizing your successes. It's think, trusting that those good things are going to make him feel better about you. Now, Jesus tells a story about this, because this wasn't uncommon. They dealt with it too. Luke chapter 18 is a story that he tells. I'll just summarize it. It's a story of a religious leader called a Pharisee and a tax collector, known as, kind of known as cheats of the day. And Jesus tells this story. He says, look at this. This guy, the Pharisee, comes to the house of God, and he starts to pray out loud, Lord, thank you so much that I'm not like the robbers, the thieves. Oh, gosh, there's a tax collector. Like this guy over here. I'm not like that. And Lord, you know, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. And what is he illustrating? It's, you know, Jesus is kind of giving an over-the-top illustration to demonstrate something. Then, 
how does this tax collector, a guy who is a cheat, how does he come before God? You get this image like he's basically on his knees, hands out, starts beating his chest. Lord, you know what a mess I am? Have mercy on me. And Jesus says, who's justified in my eyes? It would be the tax collector. Because what is the religious leader doing? He's trusting that his successes, what he defines as successes, are good things, are going to give him favor for God. So the correlation for us is any time that we think our successes, the good things we do, is going to make God like us a little bit more, give us a little bit more favor, we are falling right back into the trap of the law, doing exactly what they did in Galatians in chapter 3. And this is why we can subtly slip into this. And it's a, it's a big deal. So the question is, do you tend to justify yourself? Self-justification. Um, it could creep out in a lot of different ways. It could creep out in things. You might just even be good. You're just good at what you do. You're faithful in that. You don't miss work, whatever your thing is. And you know, it's like, I'm actually doing really good here. God is probably going to feel a little better about me now. Um, my favor is going to go up a little bit. Um, uh, it could be spiritual successes. You've encouraged people. You see some results in that. And you feel like that's granting you God's acceptance in a deeper way. Um, and it can come in a million ways. You know, some people have gone to seminary out of guilt, trying to get a Bible degree, thinking that if they study hard, work hard, God is going to give them more favor if they accomplish with all that work. But what are they, what's that mindset doing? You're going right back to a scale, feeling like you have to do things to get the favor of God. So you bring your successes before him to make you feel better about yourself. Those things in and of themselves are not bad things. They only become tainted when we think that by doing those things, we get God to like us more, feel better about us more, give us his favor. Is that making sense? Now there's another trap. <clears throat> this is number two, which is minimizing your sin. What's that mean? That's called pretense, pretending that we don't struggle. Um, well, fact is we all struggle. So Jesus had to illustrate this one with somebody who was doing this. He minimized his own sin. Ah, I don't really deal with that. And he tries to justify himself. And this is a story of a lawyer um, who's talking to Jesus. True story. Um, and the lawyer, he was an expert, a scribal expert in the law, the Jewish law. So what we call that today is a lawyer. Um, but it'd be like a scribe, Jewish lawyer kind of thing. But verse 25, even Jesus picked on lawyers. Isn't that encouraging? Um, give you a little freedom in your jokes. Okay, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law, the lawyer, stood up to Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? It's a central question we came and started with. How, what do I need to do to be made right with God? <coughs> now, Jesus could give one of those two answers, the faith answer or the law answer. The only reason you'd ever give a law answer is to show someone who really needs it that they need it, and they can't ultimately live up to it. So Jesus says he's going to throw the law answer at him, and he's going to use it to show this guy how much he really needs uh, needs God. And so, so he says, what do I need to do to get eternal life? Verse 26, Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Now, you have to understand, even this guy's motives weren't good, because it says um, he stood up to test Jesus. So there's a whole testing thing going on here. Now, verse 27, the guy answers, well, you got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength, and with all your mind, and you have to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, well, you've answered correctly. Go do this and you'll live. Now, what's Jesus doing there? He knows this guy knows he's not loving God with everything he's got. He knows he doesn't love everybody with all the love he's got. He can't. 
He's already messed it up. He knows that. So Jesus says, yeah, go do that, and you'll live. Now, uh, this guy doesn't want to end it here. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's, it's, it's the lawyer in him is going to come out here. He's like, wait, wait. He wanted, it says, but he wanted to justify himself, and he says, wait, so, so who's my neighbor? Like, how does this work? Who, how do you define neighbor? You know, want to know how that word is defined? This, the current teaching of the day, the scribal definition was a neighbor is someone who is living a righteous life. So people who weren't living a life that was God-honoring not really considered your neighbor because they were, in a sense, away from God. So in his mind, he's like, yeah, I love that person next door. I love my other people. I love all these righteous people. I'm probably doing pretty good. So he throws it out there to say, kind of justify himself. He minimizes his own failures and, and sins and throws that out there. So Jesus comes back with a story that basically says, no, your neighbor is your enemy. And that way he kind of just floors the guy right there. He uses the law to demonstrate he needs God. So, with this one, do you or I tend to fall in that too? Do we tend to think that we minimize our own sin? And it can happen subtly. We can be people who um, think, well, okay, I'm not cheating the IRS. I'm not stealing at work. I'm not sleeping around right now. I'm pretty good here. But can I give you a few things to think about? Tell me if you struggle with these. Does anybody struggle with a foul temper? Oh, good. Okay, it's not us. Okay. Uh, no, but really, do you understand that? Like, does your temper ever get the best of you? You have a short fuse. Do you ever have nagging anxiety? Got to feel like you got to work it out. It's hard to trust God. Do you ever have a controlling and critical mind? You might not ever say it out loud, but in your head, boom, it's just, you're so quick to go there. High standards, almost nobody will meet those. Um, what about lustful thoughts? Do you struggle? How you look at people? Do you ever feel like, catch yourself, and you compare yourself? Especially if you're not feeling like you're in the best space, but okay, at least I'm not as bad as that. Like, okay. If, there, if God would grade on a scale, I'd probably be a little farther up. That one's, be, okay, at least I'm not all the way, you know, over there. What are we doing? We're minimizing our sin. What's the reality? We all struggle, some level, probably in all of those, right? I struggle. Do you? And what is, what is the whole thought process behind the idea that we've got to bring our successes or we've got to downplay our sin? Why do we do that? Because somewhere in the recesses of our mind, we think that we've got to make God feel better about us. And we've got to either trumpet our successes or downplay how bad we are because we don't need the rejection of God. Yeah, we need Jesus, but no, we're going to do this. And so it creeps in. And what we're doing is going right back to a scale. So I want to just give you two things today. Um, they're very simple. But it's the idea of like if this blessing of Abraham, this amazing relationship with God is so real that we can fully experience that. How do we begin to enter into that and, and, and get to experience that even more fully? And two simple things. The first one is this. Admit your need or admit your need for Christ. Now, sounds really easy. We know that we do it. But let me, let me just give you uh, an example of how often we work or think. Um, at my house, I don't know if your house is like this, but at my house, um, we'll try and keep the house picked up. It doesn't always work, but we'll try to keep it picked up. But there's one room that just never seemed to ever make it. Like, it just doesn't ever happen in the way you... I always envisioned it. 
You ever see those shows like these garage looks perfect? Whatever. My garage has never looked like that. I don't, I don't know if it ever will. But it's, it's, for some reason, my garage accumulates and things collect in there. And then every once in a while, I'll get the courage to go in there with a whip and tame the beast, you know, clear out some of the boxes, try and dent, and then, okay, feel better, and it's done it. But it, it's the one area that always has seemed to, like, become a mess. So even, like, even in our other house, it was like that. And I would park in the garage, but you had to be like, a, uh, like a, an amazing driver because you have, like, very small margin on each side to squeeze the car right in there, open the door and get out without knocking things over, whatever. And so if we were ever out with people, we're bringing back to the house, and a lot of times I'd just drop them off in the front, and I'd say, hey, why don't you go ahead and go in the front? I'm going to pull the car around. And I think, oh, he is so nice. No, I'm not nice. I just don't want you to see my garage, is what I'm thinking. No, you don't even know. It's a disaster in there. And I don't know if your house has a drawer like that, a room like that, or whatever, but there's a mess somewhere. And it's like, it's not the room you just go and show everybody when they come over. We have rooms like that in our own life. It's the places, hidden places that we don't like to even acknowledge, we deny them, and mostly we hide them. It's places in our lives that exist. And it's the very things that when you go before God, he knows and he sees, and it's safe to admit those things there. It's even safe to do it with each other. You know, Paul, he's such an intellectual giant. He wrote most of the New Testament. He's a spiritual giant, a leader. He modeled this for us in an amazing way. He got the message of the cross so well that he could live so freely, even how he wrote. So three things he admits. He admits his fears. He admits failures. He admits frustrations. There's three verses on your outline. Let's just take a look. The first one is his fears. He says, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Now picture that. He is physically shaking. This is your spiritual giant, freaking out, terrified. Do you have fear? Do you ever struggle with fear? I do. Do you ever get worried about your financial future? Ever keep you up at night? I do. I've struggled with that. Have you ever feared being rejected by people? No, I do. Don't you? Don't you like to be liked by other people? You hate that? Even if you're kind of one of those people you have kind of tough skin, yeah, whatever they think. There are people that you really do care. So there's fear of rejection. Fears creep in in all different kind of ways. One of the most freeing things we can do is just drop those before the Lord. Don't hide that. Just drop it. It's like that ta- the tax collector who just drops his knees, hands up, this is me. This is how fallen I am. I struggle with this stuff. He goes on to say, it's not just your fears, it is your failures. Romans chapter 7, verse 19 says this. For what I do isn't the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. He's basically saying a habitual sin. I keep doing this over and over. You're like, oh gosh, I can't bring that again. The minute you think that I can't bring this to God again, you've added a law and you've gone back to a scale. Can't add that in there. But even Paul, just dropping it out, being real. I sin, I struggle. I've got it. Do you know what happens when you can share that? Share your failures? It, it, it does some amazing things in here. It creates community and it eliminates competition. And with your relationship with God, it'll give you new freedoms that you'll you get to walk in. It's safe. So he admitted his failures. 
What else did he admit? He admits his frustrations. This is first, or 2 Corinthians 1.8 on your outline. It says, well, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired. How much? Even of life. The idea is this. He wished he could die. A suicidal thought. Whether he would want to take his life or just God take it, but just end it. Have you ever been so much at the end of your rope that that thought has come through your mind? Some of you may have walked in here today feeling that at the end of your rope, thinking, I wish I could end it all. Paul felt like that. He, admit, he wrote it down for people to read. He was free enough with God to do that. If you're feeling that, questions I'd have is what's overwhelming you? And who have you told about it? Share that with someone. You have freedom to do that. You have to pretend like it's not there. Don't go back to a scale. It's really powerful, awesome stuff. The challenge we have is a lot of times we feel like those things label us. They define who we are. And so we carry that. That's why the next, second thing is really key. You have to embrace God's favor. Embrace God's favor. Um, this is hard because we live in a world where we're really used to trying to earn it. Um, and a, a world that kind of builds things up, hypes things up. Um, but the whole idea that we have to perform to gain acceptance is so embedded in us. There's a story, um, true story of a dad who had a couple kids. They played soccer. And when the, little, the oldest one got old enough to play soccer, um, he was talented, strong kid, um, gifted at the sport, and would not just kick the ball a lot, but he would score almost every game. Uh, and so on the way home, they'd stop at McDonald's. The dad would get him a shake as a reward, like, great job, you scored today. And they'd celebrate as a family. And um, the littlest, uh, the younger son began, when he got old enough, he began to play too. And he used to attend the games and, all, and watch, but now he's old enough to play, not as gifted. In fact, he barely even touched the ball, let alone score. And he played for several seasons, and <clears throat> they're driving home, they pass the McDonald's, and the dad looks over and he notices that his younger son has this tear. He goes, buddy, what's wrong? He goes... I guess I'll never get the milkshake, huh, Dad? And for the dad, right at that moment, he realized what he'd communicated, and he didn't even mean it. But he was communicating that when you perform, you'll be celebrated and accepted. Now, that was not even his heart, not even his mind, but it was at a critical time in this kid's life where that was communicated, and fortunately, he shared it. Dad could adjust it. But that's just a subtle example, no matter where we go in life. We feel like we always have to earn it, perform it, whether it's at work, in a relationship, um, at school. It creeps up all over the place. We're so used to having to perform that the idea of trying to have a relationship with God where that's not part of the equation is mind-boggling. It's, 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 it's hard to compute. We also live in a world where there's so much hype. Uh, things are built up, and they really just aren't much of what they said they would be. You ever watch infomercials, right? You ever seen those ones like hair removal and these ladies are like smiling, ching, like taking off their legs, uh, whatever. You know, those, some of those rip your hair out by the roots. Like you're not smiling when you get home or like uh, uh, someone in staff was telling me they got those, these knives that cut through anything. Yeah, but they rushed when you watch them. So what's the big deal? So we live in a world where there's letdowns. It's always there. So there's hype. And there's this always behind it, this subtle need that we've got to perform to earn it. And that's like a weight on us. So the challenge of this chapter and these verses today is, are you trying to gain the acceptance, favor, approval, 
to make God like you a little bit more. And if we're honest in here, it's like we have this just-to-be-sure attitude. We want to add and do these things just to be sure, you know, God's good. We don't need that just-to-be-sure attitude. In fact, if we're really honest, when you go before God, and if it'd be like you could hang a placard around your neck, and whatever label you'd put on there is kind of how you think God sees you. And somewhere we struggle and think that all the things that we have done wrong, the ways we fail, get frustrated, our sins, all those things, those now define us so that we, when we come into the presence of God, that is exactly what he sees. And so we feel guilty. So we try and say, really, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad of a person. And you're going to try and show you, like, but I'm doing these good things. Even if you don't verbalize it, you might feel it. But even in those deep-seated uh, core feelings, we're going back to a scale. So the challenge is understanding the immensity of the cross. The cross is so powerful, it says this, that when Jesus came, he took those placards off of your neck and they were put on his neck at the cross. So all those labels, whether people call them those to you or you put them on yourself, all those labels, all those things that you regret, feel like define you, your failure, all those go on Christ at the cross. All of your sin on him at the cross. And when you put your faith in Christ, he takes new placards, new things, and you wear those. The very ones he wears that you are considered righteous. You are now holy. You have nothing to perform. You get to freely wear those as his child. Isn't that powerful? And that's the story of the cross. So anytime we go back and feel like we've got to try and earn it, make him feel a little bit better, put those placards back on, we're mocking the cross in a sense because it was so powerful, so great that we are off the scale. And now we live a life and live a life doing the things we'd always hoped to do by the power of his spirit. We're not doing that to gain the approval of God. We do it because we have the approval of God, right? So let's pray. I encourage you just to put your Bibles down and your notes down and pause for a second because we're not just going to pray. We're going to respond to the message. There's communion set up around the room. And we're going to do something today, too. There's some crosses around the room, and they're there for a reason. They're there to interact with this message a little bit more, to respond to God. This is the most important part of our service. But it's the time where you're, I want you to think of those labels, those things, the things that you personally carry about yourself, and you feel like they define you or they feel like that's what God sees in you. I want you to, to take, there's some paper, and there's little pencils, and these there's some baskets right next to the cross. And you're going to take those paper and those pencils, and what I want you to do is you're going to write the very things that you regret, the things that you feel like define you, your labels. You're going to put those labels on that paper. And as you do that, um, you're also going to take them and you're going to fold them up, and then you're going to put them at the cross. And you're going to leave them there where they belong. And after you do that, you can go back to the tables, the communion tables. And this is where you're going to just take the body and the blood of Christ. And when you pick up the, the, the communion, you look at the bread and it's a picture that God came and he broke his body. He died on the cross, taking all of your sin upon himself, becoming the curse. And the blood represents that you have a whole new way of relating to, to God. That uh, in that, he would suffer and die and go to the point of death so that you could have a whole new way of relating 
and all those other labels, all those things are now washed away. And you take communion as a free person because you've left all the other baggage at the cross where it belongs. Okay? Let me pray with you right now and uh, we'll respond to the Lord. Well, <clears throat> this is a great morning, Lord. Thank you for it. Thank you that we could look at Galatians and take a look at this chapter. And Thank you that uh, the message of the cross is so much bigger than we ever give it credit for. Thank you so much for taking on every label that I've carried and we've carried for how long. Thank you so much that we don't ever have to go back to a scale to earn your approval or gain your acceptance. Thank you for that. I just want to say if there's anybody in this room who has never given their life to Christ, it's as simple as saying, Christ, I acknowledge you as God who came in the flesh, died in my place, took upon all my sin, everything, everything. And I ask you to come into my life. I don't trust in anything I've ever done. And you make me clean. I give you my life. I, I, you're my leader. I follow you. Give me your spirit. I want the blessing of Abraham. Justification made right with you. The power of the spirit of God within me. I want that. So I surrender my life and I show you all the dirt. Because I know I have full acceptance in your sight when I do it. If you've done that, you're part of the family of God. You're free to take communion as well. So all of us, Lord, we want to celebrate the richness of the relationship, the freedom of not having to perform, the freedom of being real, and to experience your blessing when we do that. And so now, touch and move on these people as they uh, take communion and respond to you by writing those out, Lord. So meet us at the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That means today when you leave, you remember the cross. You might have to tomorrow go back and write those same things down, bring them back to the cross, and enter the rest. Don't go back to the scale, because God has that plan for you. So may the peace and the joy and the, the life that God offers be yours in abundance this week as you pursue him and as you drop your labels right back at the cross where they belong. God bless you. We will see you guys next week. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.